Welcome to BizBytes, brought to you by Com Together, helping businesses like yours build their brand through telling amazing stories to engage and grow audiences on multiple platforms. I hope you've had a chance to listen to part one of this interview on BizBytes. Stay tuned now for part two. Hmm. It's it, it is. Um it's it's a very interesting idea that being switched on about being present because there are a lot of people and i think particularly i imagine during covid where that experience was forced on people where they were they were working but they also had kids around them at home yeah and that idea of whether you're present or not for which one it is hard to that that idea of multitasking is such a misnomer we're all guilty of it uh, at various times. Um, and uh, being a creative person, uh, jumping from one thing to the next seems to be my uh, uh, a common occurrence. But but I know what you mean. There's a point when you, you do need to make that, you do need to make a choice to switch on. And I think that's not a decision that most people are consciously making. No. And I really learned that from my training. And I remember once, when um, I was running a workshop and there was about 60 people in the workshop and there were teenagers and adults and I was teaching accelerated learning in those days. So two minutes before I'm about to start the second day, a parent comes up to me and gives me an earful of what she thinks uh, her daughter is learning about being independent, a whole bunch of other things. So she's going in my ear. And I, I agreed to disagree with her, and then I left. And from the time I went into the room till the time I got in front of everybody else, I had totally isolated that woman and her vitriol. In other words, I didn't let it carry with me to being in front of my audience because I would have been half there. And <clears throat> so I've learned in my life like if I'm coaching with someone, there is only one person in the world when I'm working with them, and that's them. That's mm. all. I've learned how to um, put containers, or if you like, or boundaries around the things that I'm doing rather than being attentive, being in two places at the same time. A German friend of mine has this cute phrase. He says, you can't dance at two weddings at the same time. Now, I don't know how they made that saying up, but it's pretty good. Um, and so, so it's the so, joint wedding, of course. Then it breaks all the rules. Yes. <laughs> so, so I learned to be present when I'm doing something. So, for example, when I was skydiving, I had to be fully present with what was going on, because if I miss something, it can actually be quite dangerous. Um, you can't you know, be thinking when, when about the your, next proposal if you're if you're no, you can't, when, you're you can't when you're plummeting down fall. a few thousand feet. <laughs> you're going to be fully there. You're going to, this is what I do next, and this is what I do next, and that's what's going on. Can't afford to mess those things up. And I'm really glad that I learned these things even before I became a parent. So mm. this is just in my basic training. And it's like mindfulness, but it's it's learning to be able to separate one context from another and having some kind of ritual in between. It's called a contextual marker where you mark out one context from another and become fully present in what you're doing. Um, I'll give you another example of this. 
With my clients, I teach them time management, and that's a basic. You know, if you want to manage your time, these are the things that you do. Do them, and you'll have more time in your hands. That's one level. But a more important level is energy management, because I could have all the time in the day, but if I've got no energy, nothing's going to get done. So a higher level of thinking about time is actually how you manage your energy. And when I've worked with uh, other elite athletes, like there's a cyclist, I was working with some triathletes and some cyclists, and these guys were national champions. And um, elite sports people can be guilty of overtraining. You know, they just, this is their passion, this is the thing that they do, they just want to do it again, again, again. And all the coaching, the health profession saying, no, you have to stop and you have to do deep recovery. So you have to learn how to put a boundary around something and then allow your body to fully recover so that you can go back and then perform at a high level. That's bloke. He wouldn't listen to us. He wouldn't listen to his coach. <laughs> no, no, I'm just going So he was overtraining and he was in a training program. And what happens is this is if you're not, if your body is not fully in the zone, because you've been overstretching muscles or extending them, you don't have the finesse that you do if you do deep recovery. So he's going around a corner. There's some gravel there. He doesn't have the the finesse, if you like, with his body. He slips. He loses concentration for half a second. He slips and he grazes one side of his body completely. He looks like he's just gone through a cheese grater. So... Three months of racing. He can't race for three months. And we're not sniggering at him, but we're kind of saying, well, we do tell you that um, you need to do some deep racing. So part of that is then how you, how do you manage your energy? And one of the ways that I manage my energy, I live in an eco-village here in Crompton Valley on the Gold Coast. So we're surrounded by nature. So if I'm doing a lot of brain stuff, head stuff, and I can feel my brain is getting full, I just walk around our hamlet amongst all the trees, the kangaroos, the koalas, et cetera, et cetera. And that refreshes me. That gives me some deep rest. Then I can go back to work at a higher level than if I just soldier on and just keep on doing, keep on doing, keep on, which is absolutely stupidity because you don't get any further. So, you know, what I teach my clients is that, you know, get your time management organized, but also learn how to manage your energy. So when you do need to operate at a high level, you've got the mental, the emotional, and the physical, and even the spiritual reserves to be able to do that. And yeah. this is, I'm not teaching people rocket science. It's actually, in my view, <laughs> because I've been around it for so long, dead easy. But I guess, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And if, um, so really that's what I help my clients with. And it's so much fun, I've got to say. It's so much fun teaching a high-performing chief executive of a company to go get a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> do some gardening, learn to sing, you know, make sculptures, whatever, get your hands dirty, you know, because it's so out of the field, you know, they've got all this important stuff to do. I'm going, no, nah, you've got to be a five-year-old. Go be a five-year-old. That'll give you more energy to do the, the very important things that you're doing in the world. Yeah, I, I, I love all of that. And I, I relate completely to um, what you were talking about just then because uh, we made a decision to... Um, move out of Sydney um, earlier this year. And so we're 
shifting between two places at the moment and and living the the property that we've bought on the central coast um outside of sydney has one neighbor and we look into into bushland and uh we know that there are deer, there's deers and wallabies and all sorts of things that are that are um come along and will come along and visit over time and uh you just get lost out there and i know uh when i exactly the scenario that you're talking about and there are times and you just just walk out into the garden and it just completely changes the way you think and, and approach things uh and i think being able to have that is is so important because many of us and i imagine many of the ceos that you talk to were brought up with this culture of just keep working harder that you know you get into yeah. the office at, at <clears throat> seven o'clock in the morning you don't leave till seven o'clock at night sometimes and you go home and you do some more work in between um it's it's fascinating to me that um people get so caught up in that and they feel that need to conform to all of those yeah. things and i think that being able to have a mechanism for switching off is so important but it's really taught and the same as that mechanism for as you talked about before about knowing when it's time to switch on and switch off certain things so when, when you walk through the front door your dad whereas when you walk out the front door you're the ceo um you know those little little moments can can make a difference and you have to find that balance and i think particularly a, a lot of people struggle with that in the working from home that hmm. there's not the the switch on switch off yeah. uh, mechanisms in place for that and i imagine that's you know it's been an interesting period for the space that you've been in for the past um two or three years yeah and, and you're right because you know more, more and more people are working from home so how do you separate some people may have the luxury of having an office so then there's that physical environment where they can okay this is where i'm doing the work that i do and then outside of that and so while it is trickier it doesn't mean that it's impossible but one of the things that i encourage my clients to do is at the beginning of the week to talk to their family and their kids and work together saying, okay, these are the hours that I've got to do this. Um, you know, what are your school things that are going on, the concerts, sports, whatever it might be, and blend them together, integrate them together. And so the whole family can work out how their week is going to work like. And for some, it might be for some, sometimes that there's a high emphasis on getting work done because of, whatever constraints are around there. There might be high urgency about something or high importance. Um, but then there needs to be a negotiation that after this, you know, rush hour of work, we spend more family time together. And so, and this you can also, and I encourage my, my clients to teach their kids win-win negotiation way before they get to be teenagers. And this is really interesting because, you know, the kids become very good negotiators. They say, okay, well, if you do this, then I want this. And if you oh, do yes. this, but it's, <laughs> it might be, you know, some listeners might think, well, that's a bit dangerous. Um, but if they can become good negotiators, then it's easy. As long as you're all coming from a, how can we all win from this? Then there's give and take, there's listening. And the, the kids can learn a whole bunch of really valuable 
negotiating skills, which are life skills. They can use them for the rest of their lives. And when they get to be teenagers, then they also understand that it's not, it's not just me, 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 as a lot of teenagers can think. It's like, how can we make it about us? And then there's a better way of coming to more reasonable negotiations about, you know, what they want, what they don't want, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, it is trickier, but it's not impossible. And, and really, as I said before, the things that I'm teaching are not rocket science. I'm not that clever to be a rocket scientist. Um, I'm, I like practical stuff, things that people can do. And uh, one of my superpowers is making things that are complex into simple, from complex to simple, and with little things that people can do. And if, when families can, you know, work together like this, it's great. There's so many, so many learnings that go on at all levels that it's just priceless. Well, I, I should at this point mention my other daughter, my younger daughter, who um, is going to be listening to this podcast because she's the production <laughs> editor of my, pod, of oh, my podcast. And we thank you for doing that. Um, but uh, Maya was a master negotiator. I don't, when she was little, we never <laughs> seemed to be able to leave the house without there being, I'll go if, um, you know, if you get me this. These days, it's more like I'll go if I get a, you know, a coffee, um, then it's, you know, it's a little bit cheaper than it was in the earlier days, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, but now it's a bit like, well, you'll get paid if you edit the podcast. So um, so get cracking. So, uh, yes, so, yes, yes. so this is my little nod to her now, <laughs> listening in. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you as well about, because I'm fascinated about the journey to getting to, through to all of this. And, you know, you touched on, on being a child without your without your father, which must have been challenging, I'm sure. Where where did you? But where did the career start? Because this is an area that that obviously came to you later on. So what did you? Where did you start off? Uh, where was the original goal of where you were going? Oh uh, gosh, you made it into this. I, I don't know that there was a clear. It was more of a winding pathway, and over here, all over Dale, and and you know, it's a windy thing. Um, and I've been working at one of the health retreats here on the Gold Coast some years ago. And I'm very good at picking up patterns of where people are going, what's happening. And a, a lot of people, uh, and often it would be successful uh, men in whatever uh, job or career that they're in, and they would talk about, you know, I've got all these things, but why aren't I happy? You know, I've got the helicopter, the cars, the house, the blah, 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 but I just feel empty. And that's often because they were um, disconnected from their heart. And, and so a whole variety of things came from that. And then, and I was working with people in different ways. And then I came across this book called The Power of Full Engagement. And a friend of mine gave me this book and said, have a look at this, and it's by Jim Lear and Tony Swartz. And so he talks about energy management, but he's what he's really talking about is another level of, you've probably heard of the term work-life balance. Well, yes. the problem with that term is it kind of implies that things are equal, but it's not. It may have been in the days when we all worked nine to five and that was it. And then you'd go home and you had your family, whatever. But that's changed like decades ago. But it's not a balance. It's more about this is the important things that we're doing this week, whether it's in our family or whether it's in work. 
and how can we blend those things together. And I learned a lot from that book, and that's really the underpinning of, of much of the work that I've done. And I just found it so, uh, for me, part of, part of the buzz for the work that I do is to help people be five-year-olds. And I'm talking about people in serious suits and, you know, titles, et cetera. Um, and when I've been doing workshops, if I can help, you know, very serious, intelligent, high-performing people become little five-year-olds, I, I reckon I've won. You know, we've all won. So part of this has been helping them come back into their heart, not just into their busy, busy, you know, head uh, or the things that they do, but to come from their heart. So that's really I was going to say the heart of our work is being in the heart, and it's true. That's what it's all about. And and it, it just kind of evolved, you know. Um, so, Anthony, I don't know about you. Did you, as a teenager, go, I want to be a podcast host? Because, of course, they didn't have podcasts. Well, of course, you're on no, radio. No, That's but a different I'd have, to, <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to say that my passion was radio. Um, and okay. so so gravitating into into podcasting has been um, uh, something of going back to that um, original idea of what I what I wanted to do, and and radio has always been a passion of mine, and and uh, and podcasting is the new version of that. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really easy kind of transition for me. It was more opportunities would come up, and I'd you know walk into that space and go, "Does this fit with where I am right now?" And uh, one of the one of my early mentors, he said to me. This is my late 20s, and I was learning about a model called transactional analysis and gestalt therapy and a whole bunch of, you know, groovy modalities and personal development. And I noticed that a lot of people who work from nine to five, they, they'd leave their brains at home. They work from nine to five, and at five o'clock, they come alive. And I'm thinking, what a waste of creativity, of life, of space. And John Barnaby, his name, he he shared a word with us, and the word is plerk. So it's spelt P-L-E-R-K. Right. So the P-L stands for play or pleasure. Okay. Yep. The R-K stands for the work bit, paying mortgage, paying the bills, blah, 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 blah. And the E stands for enthusiasm, effort, excitement, energy, all those things, all the things that five-year-olds are really, 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 really good at doing. I'm going, wow. I don't want to work ever again in my life. I want to plug for the rest of my life. So it's been that's been my emphasis, as if I'm doing something that I really love and my heart's in it, then that's where I need to be. And that's changed, you know, working with different people. Um, but that's always been the core of what I've done. The format of how that happens has changed over the years and gone, you know, I've worked with kids at risk and, and gifted kids and, um, a whole variety of different things. But that thing about, you know, coming from the heart and playing has always been there. The format's changed, but that's always been the constant. I wanted to ask, how do, you know, how do people find you? And I don't mean in a literal sense of, you know, yes, you're on. <laughs> Where do I live? <laughs> I mean, what, what's the, how, what, what drives people to want to engage with you in the first place is it is it people that are hearing about you working with other people or how does you know because it has to be an element of self-realization i guess to say i really need someone like bill in my life yeah pain people come to me in pain um it's not like going to a dentist where you know there's going to be some physical pain this is more um emotional pain and it's when um 
you know, that they're, they're sensing separation from their kids or, or their health, you know, and a lot of men are not always that good at looking at after their health. Um, I'm fortunate for the last, yeah, pretty much most of my life I have looked after my health. Uh, you wouldn't believe looking at me that I'm 99, would you? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm five-year-old, actually. Uh, so part of that is, um, you know, when people feel separation, and it's usually in the, 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 the dark hours of night when they're missing their kids or, they, or they, they're racked with guilt because they've missed another school concert or the, they're, they're about to go away again and they see the look of disappointment in their child's eyes that they're not going to be there. And it's that emotional pain. <clears throat> the basically, they'll have their radar out for who can, who can help me solve this bit because they've got many things in their life that are going really well. It might be their career, you know, some of the material things in life perhaps and status, whatever. But it's the things of the heart. And they, these are some of the soft skills that I've spent decades working with. Um, and, and and so that's my passion. That's my superpowers of having to help people find those things. And as I've said before, you know, what I teach, what I share isn't rocket science. <laughs> it's pretty simple, pretty easy. Well, at least from my perspective, because I've been around it for a long time. But well, I have well, to admit. I, well, I'd have to say, Bill, that's the that's the understatement because we all have these kind of so-called superpowers don't we and and things that come easy to us you only realize after a while that what comes easy to you is often not easy to the next person and that's your power is to be able to to deliver that um before we wrap things up i wanted to ask you about the book and and listeners um will not be able to see that there's uh, Bill's got his book on display in the background (laughs) there as well. But uh, tell me a little bit about the book, um, How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism. Uh, Uh, How did it come about and and what's the the book? I mean, you know, it seems like an obvious thing, but who's the book for? Okay. So the book came, again, so I've been going to men's gatherings for the last 10 years here in Queensland. And I always listen to conversations around the meal table, around the fire. And what I was hearing was a lot of men were saying that, you know, they might be very successful, but, you know, sometimes they just felt so um, raw and vulnerable if someone was criticising them or what they'd done. And I'm going, there's a pattern here. And so, you know, because I had 40 years of experience in a wide variety of different things, um, I picked up a few clues along the way. And I had an experience. I'll just briefly tell you a story here. When I was first training and speaking, and I was working with a group of special education teachers, and I was teaching about accelerated learning, the things that I know, that they didn't know. The room was full of people with uh, master's degrees and PhDs in education, and I don't have a degree in education. So I was a bit cheeky, but they didn't know what I knew. It was in the second week, I think, that I was talking about the model of uh, transactional analysis, and very briefly, it's like parent, adult, and child. And I made the statement that I didn't think it was a good idea for parents to use guilt or teachers to use guilt to get the kids to do things. Well, this just, I don't know what it did to her, but it blew her fuse. And she just launched her the most vitriolic attack I've ever, ever experienced in my life. Like it was just full on scuffed missile after scuffed missile. 
So I'm hearing these. So I'm leading a workshop. There's 20 people in the workshop. Can you imagine if someone just laying into you and it's getting quite personal? And so I remained calm. I, I, I did some internal emotional supporting on myself. And because of what I knew, I, I let her finish. And I, I asked her two questions. And basically, at those two questions, I had her in checkmate. She had nothing to say. So I'm not going to tell you what that is because you'll have to read the book now. But these two questions were things that I knew. And so I knew how I had some visceral experience of being bulletproof and criticism. So the book, uh, I've written five books. And I reckon this is my best one. It's got so many bits of wisdom that I've gathered basically from my mentors. It's not my original stuff. I'm, this is stuff I've learned from others. But it's like put together my own stories and my own voice. And I love this book. It just... It's such a neat book. It's, it's uh, like two hours of reading. But if, you know, there's two places we can get criticism. It's either from other people or it's from ourselves. And for a lot of people, they are walking nightmares. If you were to read a transcript of what they say to themselves, you'd think it'd be a horror movie. People can be just so mean and nasty and vicious and live with that all the time Go, wow, why did you do that? Anyway, so that's that's the essence of the book. And, um, you know, the show notes, I'll give a link where people can can find that book. Um, I yeah. love it. I love it. And, and I love what you're saying about that. And we do have to wrap things up. But, but uh, I think the interesting thing about that, uh, um, about criticism of ourselves, is often that we um, can presume what other people might be thinking about us and take that on board and that's become I think a rather large anxiety that a lot of people suffer from is that they immediately assume that other people are thinking something when chances are they're not and that (laughs) internal criticism can be debilitating and uh, it is an important message for people to to get through and, and understand so definitely appreciate um us having that those details in the uh, we'll put them in the show notes so people can get a hold of the book and uh and the other books that you've written when we we'll, we perhaps will talk about those on another occasion but uh, <laughs> yes. I, I really wanted to i really wanted to thank you for for being a, an amazing guest on the on the program and uh you know we talk about often with our guests about our hot moments that our clients have and i can just see that dancing around as a five-year-old uh, as being the uh, <laughs> one of the key uh, heart moments, either that or you're pushing them out of a plane. So one of the two. Uh, but uh, thank you, Pete. <laughs> thank you so thank you so much for being so generous and sharing so many stories, and really appreciate it. And we will, of course, um, give everyone the opportunity to get in touch with you and find out more uh, in the show notes. Thank you for being on the podcast, Bill. Thanks, Anthony. It's been heaps of fun. And uh, to everyone listening in, stay tuned for the next episode of BizBytes. BizBytes is brought to you by ComTogether for all your marketing needs so you can build your brand, engage audiences on multiple platforms. Go to comtogether.com.au, follow the links to book an appointment for a free consultation.